Welcome to another episode of the TLDR UK podcast. I am Zach Michaelis, TLDR's Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined today uh, by Ben Blissett. Hello. TLDR UK's lead writer, and Rory Taylor, TLDR's global lead writer. We're just going to go for it. You're global lead writer <laughs> yes, now. It's thank happened. you. Okay. Hello. Um, just a tiny bit of housekeeping before we get into stuff. Uh, we, as regular viewers will know, we move these podcasts over to TLDR UK for a bit. And we have since decided to move them back to TLDR podcast channel um, because they just look too much like normal videos and a significant fraction of the audience was getting confused. And it seems to be hurting our normal videos. But anyway, uh, this is we're back on TLDR podcast and this is where we'll probably stay from now on. So just a bit of housekeeping. Um, in this podcast, we are going to be talking mostly uh, about a new poll that was conducted by YouGov but published by The Telegraph, I'm right in saying, um, that suggests that things are perhaps even worse than Rishi Sunak is currently anticipating uh, and that he is on track to lose a sort of worse than 1997-style landslide to Keir Starmer's Labour Party. Um, but as is custom on this podcast, before we get into that, we are going to do our unreported stories, which is when each of us find or pick a story that we think hasn't been sufficiently covered by the mainstream media this week. So, with all that being said, uh, Rory, what is your unreported story? Yes, I'm going close to home than usual with mine. So, mine is a story um, from Northern Ireland. I think it was just this morning the news broke. Um, there's going to be another recall of the Northern Ireland Assembly to try and elect a speaker. Um, I think it's the sixth. It will be the sixth one since the the last um, Northern Ireland Assembly election, which was in 2022, I believe. Um, so. Uh, as people viewing this will probably know, the DUP are boycotting the Northern Irish political institutions in protest of post-Brexit-related trading arrangements. Um, I won't get into it too much, but I think this is an interesting one because we're getting to, I think, nearly two years now where Northern Ireland's um, political system has just been kind of vacant. Um, and this is particularly significant at this moment because there's um, some public sector strikes going on over there. And there is the government has offered the money to give the pay uh, rises that should stop those strikes but it's, they're not able to do that because there is no government no assembly in northern ireland because of this boycott um so it's a pretty dire situation um but as things stand it looks like when the assembly is recalled i think it's going to be on wednesday that the dup will still boycott yeah. the, the, the speakership election so that will just continue um and that you know the, the crisis will just yeah. go on so i think that's something that we should probably be more aware of in, in England yeah. especially. I think I think as well just UK media just does not pay nearly enough attention to Northern Ireland. Yeah. I mean when you consider that they've had they haven't had like you know Stormont hasn't been operating for a number of years yeah. because of like various different boycotts. It's just yeah it's insane that it's not Yeah and so much of it is you know the, the DUP being passionately pro union but the other side of the union <laughs> seems to not really yeah. pay that much interest to it unless oh, I see, yeah. there's a crisis going on there. Um, no, it's a good point. So it's, it's a weird symmetry yeah. I've never thought about in those terms. You're right. Um, I also think there's something really quite uh, worrying, which is just how, with the dysfunction, how quickly the notion of loser's consent mm. being eroded in Northern Ireland. I mean, it only really, power sharing only really functions as long as like both sides of the aisle are happy to some yeah. extent to consent to the results. But if the sort of political dysfunction in the unionist camp means that results in some sense don't reflect the strength of union sentiment on the mm. island, which I think what will happen, um, then you can see that notion of his consent being strained. I mean, you already saw it when Sinn Féin came to rise, the largest party, uh, and that was that was quite like a psychological shock. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're 100% right. Northern Irish politics is just generally underreported in the mm. UK. Ben? Yeah, so mine is a story from Iceland, which is that uh, we've, we've sort of spoken about this a few times on mainly the daily briefing, 
um, that there was a large sort of eruption <laughs> predicted, which did sort of happen at the end of December. So it was the 18th of December. But there's been another one that's happened over this weekend. And the interesting thing is, is that it's, it's all, you know, the, the, the volcano is just outside a town called Grindavik. Um, and they all evacuated before before Christmas because they were expecting this 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 eruption um, and they all did sort of evacuate. The town was generally okay from it. A lot of them have come back only for this weekend to be told to leave again because there was, there was another eruption and this time it looks like it has sort of destroyed this town. There's a lot of people that aren't going to be able to go back there and all this. Don't think it's really been in the news too much specifically because the, the news and the media spoke quite a lot about that this eruption was, was predicted and the first eruption was covered quite a bit, but the second one hasn't really um, been covered too much. So yeah, there's about 4,000 inhabitants that, that uh, might not be able to go back. You know, it's destroyed homes. There's, you can see these vi- this video of just this like, lava lake just rolling through this yeah. town and destroying homes and you know, power stations and all this. So yeah, it's a, it's a pretty dire situation there. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, not, it's worth pointing out as well that it's a different kind of eruption to the one that happened about 10 years ago. It's not disrupting air traffic in the same way. But for the people in this town, it's, it, it really is messing with their lives. Yeah, my unreported story this time is, it's to do with the Red Sea crisis. It's about the Suez Canal, but it's about specifically the Suez Canal and the fact that it's basically closed. The effect on the Egyptian economy, which I think is sort of under <coughs> understated. Um, and this is essentially because Egypt is already in quite a long-running economic crisis. Um, it's, it's fundamentally like a currency crisis or maybe a balance of payments crisis. Um, but it's basically the e- Egypt's debt-to-GDP ratio has been rising really steeply. Its currency has been depreciating. Uh, and basically, the, the rate at which it pays on, on new borrowing has been going up uh, for the last couple of years under President Sisi. Um, and the Suez Canal is a massive source of foreign currency revenue for Egypt. Um, and that's especially important because Egypt's central bank has been running through its foreign currency reserves. I think it might be negotiating a new deal with the IMF, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, and again, the estimates vary as to how much of Egypt's foreign currency comes via the Suez Canal, but it's something like 15 to 25%, maybe 20%. If someone can find like, recent data, that'd be great. Um, but the, yeah, and I think that the risk here is that a prolonged closure of the Suez Canal does risk pushing Egypt into like a more acute phase of its economic crisis. And on the one hand, you might expect this to be like sort of good for regional stability because it will sort of encourage the Egyptians to more aggressively push for de-escalation. But actually, I just don't think that's how uh, an economic crisis in Egypt would interact with the wider crisis in the Middle East. I think it would just be yet another destabilizing node mm-hmm. in that sort of what is turning out to be sort of a regional crisis. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, a, that's an underreported element of the Red Sea crisis, which is mostly focused, I think, on the impact on sort of like Western shipping or Asia, Asia, Asia Europe trade. Yeah. Um, anyway, those are the unreported stories. Uh, let's take it on to the main bit of podcast. This poll and its publication seem sort of uh, coordinated by a particular faction within the Conservative Party uh, to undermine Rishi Sunak. So, mm. Ben, do you want to run us through, let's just start with the poll itself. So what is in the poll? Yeah, so the key thing to point out here is that it's not just sort of a poll in, you know, as we've discussed before. You know, usually polls will take into account about 2,000, it'll survey about 2,000 people and will come up with, you know, a percentage lead for any given party. This is different. This is an MRP poll, which means that they've surveyed a hell of a lot more people. It's about 14,000. And because they've surveyed more people, they're able to do it um, based on geography, specifically constituencies. So they're able to basically say which constituencies they think will flip and by how much. So it will, it, it, in, in, in that sense, it's able to give you sort of an indication of 
the the sort of like majorities in parliament rather than just a, a simple headline voting sort of thing. yeah headline yeah. voting yeah um so as you say this was conducted by YouGov, but it was obviously heavily um you know uh, represented by the telegraph and it was published by the telegraph it's done for the telegraph uh, but it was YouGov that conducted the research um so as i say it's about fourteen thousand adults the the key findings from this is that Labour would have a massive, like a properly massive lead. So Labour would have a majority of 120. It put them on 385 seats. The Tories on just 169 seats, uh, which is roughly in the territory of John Major in 1997 when when he lost the election. That's, the, you know, the, the Tory uh, seat share. And specifically, they say that 11 current cabinet ministers would lose their seat, including Jeremy Hunt and Penny Mordaunt. Um, it also represents an 11.5% swing to Labour, which is pretty significant. Um, and they also point out that no party has ever lost an election, uh, the, the next election, with a majority that large. So they're saying that it's almost certain that if this was accurate, Starmer would have a minimum of sort of two terms. Um, another key finding from this as well is the Lib Dems uh, going up to 48 seats uh, from currently... Is it around? about 14 or something. Yeah, it's not, it's not yeah. very high. Uh, that, you know, uh, 48 is roughly in the territory of their sort of 2005, 2010 mm. sort of territory um, before they lost them, a lot of them in 2015. Yeah. So that's quite quite significant. And the other significant thing, one last one, is the SNP. So obviously there's been a lot of talk about the SNP currently and, and you know, the state of their party. Um, they'd be reduced down to 25 seats, I think they're around the 50 mark at the minute, with a lot of the seats going to Labour. And I know that we've spoken about this before in UK videos, but... You know, Labour's victory is very much predicated on the amount of seats that they win in Scotland. It looks like they are going to win quite a lot of seats in Scotland, possibly re-establishing, you know, Scotland as a bit of a Labour base. Not entirely, not as strong as it used to be, but at least enough to push them over the edge. Uh, so, yeah, they're the sort of like headline figures from from the poll. And, and specifically, it's really important to just remember why it's so significant in that it's an MRP poll. A lot of people surveyed and it gives you indications of, you know, how many seats uh, each of the parties would get rather than just a simple you know, this, like, a 10-point lead or whatever. Mm. Yeah, and then, Rory, you were talking earlier in the office about the fact that, so it's not just that, obviously, it's bad news for Sunak, but also, yeah. this was, if I'm right, commissioned by a right-wing conservative yeah, think tank here. sort of thing. Uh, it was published alongside, uh, yeah. it was published alongside <laughs> some commentary by David Frost. Yeah, so it was Conservative Britain Alliance and Lord Frost, David Frost, who, who commissioned it and then did this Telegraph, a uh, few pieces in Telegraph, kind of an, analysing the, the numbers. Um, so, so just to point out, there's no reason to to like doubt YouGov's methods in actually conducting the poll and the results. That's all you know as as normal. Um, but the Telegraph's and Lord Frost's analysis analysis of the the data has kind of come under criticism from YouGov itself. Um, so the way they it was presented in the Telegraph was that uh, the Tories are on on course for a 1997 style defeat. However. If they can turn things around, if they if reform didn't run, then it could be a hung parliament, and you know it's possible that um, Labour wouldn't be the next government. They point out that ninety six of the seats that the Tories lose is a result of the reform. Yes, yeah, impact. and this is one of the key things that that they've kind of come under fire for. So, in the the Telegraph's analysis, they were saying their assumption that 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 would be the case if reform didn't run was that everyone who would vote reform would, would otherwise yeah vote would Tory. otherwise vote Tory, which just isn't the case. You guys yeah. have come out and said, um, yes, yeah, some would uh, some would go to like UKIP and other splinter parties, some to Labour and other established parties, and some wouldn't vote at all. 
Um, YouGov polling in October found only 31% of reform voters would be willing to vote Conservative if reform were not standing. So that's, you know, 31% is nowhere near the 100% that the Telegraph were assuming. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's worth stressing quite how nonsensical that is. I mean, like the yeah. relevant counterfactual is just so clearly not yeah. every reform voter going to the Tories. Not least because, I mean, for the reason you mentioned, some of them vote Labour, some of them mm. like Dada. But also just because, like, fundamentally, every election since, I mean, really in modern, like, the last 30 years, there has been a group to the right of the Tories yeah, exactly. to capitalise yeah. on that bit of political sentiment yeah. in the UK. Um, so I think, so what's interesting there is you can kind of disregard the Telegraph's analysis of it and just go by <laughs> what you have said, I think, is probably the right thing to do. But the fact that the Telegraph have taken this approach is quite an interesting um, kind of insight into that wing of the Tory party and what they're trying to do. So you can, you can kind of see it as them attempting to push Sunak further to the right and saying to him, look, if you want to win, this is the only way you can win by going further to the right, which has kind of been this pet project of David Frost and that kind of wing. Yeah, for, and he for says a while specifically in that, in that commentary, doesn't Frost say specifically to go on the right on immigration? Yes. You have to mm. move right on immigration. Yeah. And that is no coincidence. That comes two days ahead of this Rwanda vote, yeah. which is the third reading, is it, of it, of the Rwanda bill, yes. the new legislation. And yeah. that is due on Wednesday, am I right? Yeah, I think it could, some amendments tomorrow, I think, or it might be the actual vote itself, but either Tuesday or Wednesday, yeah. And why is this a problem for Sunak? Well, <laughs> sorry, no, you go. Yeah, no, yeah. so this is a problem because he, at the beginning of, of last year, he set out his five, you know, his five-point plan, uh, and one of them was obviously stopping the boats. And the idea that uh, none of the, the, the sort of legis legislative plans that he's come up with have really actually significantly reduced the number of small boats coming here but also just the sort of like vibe it gives off that he's staked his premiership on this small boats thing and he's not been able to deliver there's a lot on the right that are sort of saying that's why you're not doing well that's why the polling's bad that's why you need you need to go further and this this plan at the minute he's managed to pitch it almost right between the centrists of his party and those on the right so that the people in the center are saying it goes too far whereas those on the right are saying it's not well, going far enough the left is the tory party so the center yes yeah, yes okay, yes yeah. Um, are saying that it's not it's not going far enough so he's sort of being pulled by both sides and there's a there's a sort of fear this week um that he could see quite a significant tory rebellion against the bill um, both from those, you know, Tory centrists and those on the right who are both unhappy for very different reasons. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's That's not kind of not the worst like position to be him. in where both ends, yeah. both ends of the spectrum of your party don't like your legislation that is kind of your big centrepiece. You know, he, I, I, if he stays in the middle, he might lose the vote. If he shifts one way or the other, he'll probably lose the people on either side. And, you know, I don't know what the, you know, ignoring everything else, but I don't know what the political most politically savvy move would be. I, d I think the Frost idea is the wrong one, though. The mm. idea that oh, yeah, in so general been, and on immigration, the Tories yeah. need to move right is, is just Because they've been kind of saying that and doing that for, I don't know, a couple of years now, and it hasn't changed the polling at all, really. There's, probably, there's, there's, there's vaguely an argument they need to, not, I mean, not move right on immigration, but as in get tough on immigration, but mm. only because they promised to do so, only because yeah. they promised to do so. It's a question of competence rather mm. than sort of general political orientation. Stopping talking about it would probably be the best, <laughs> yeah. the best but option. Also, I, I think there's another interesting piece of YouGov polling that came out not very long ago, which is that if you compare where voters can like, perceive the Tories to be on various issues and then compare that to sort of like uh, prior British political history, um, it, the Tories are basically seen as as right-wing as 2014, 2015, 2016 UKIP. Mm. Uh, and the idea that you need to go further right than sort of mid-2010s UKIP to win a general election is just like, it's just yeah. patent nonsense. I think as well, you've got to bear in mind that the most important issue to voters, and this is borne out in polling as well, is the economy and the cost of living. And 
you know, the fact that the Tories have lost the most trust, they're no longer the most trusted party on the economy. I think that has surely got to be one of the, the biggest reasons that they're in such a polling deficit. That and the fact that their party has basically imploded in the last two years. I mean, so sort of stabilising the party and fixing fixing the economy are, two the, are, the, are probably the two main things you need to do. And I know what you're going to say is that Frost has also pointed out that you need to cut tax. Well, that would be his solution high. to like fixing the economy per se. Um, but I think the Liz Truss experience probably quite yeah. clearly mm. demonstrates that's not really a solution. Although I think, I don't want to get into this too much, but I think people have misinferred lessons from the Liz Truss experience. Like I think that basically the, the Liz Truss thing, everyone uh, inferred from that, that capital markets won't let us borrow like that much money at nice palatable rates. But I think it interacts in uncomfortable ways with the fact that the Bank of England was selling bonds at the same time. Yeah, well, this is a bit niche, but basically I think that maybe there is more fiscal space in the, for the UK mm. than people assume or people have inferred from the Liz Truss experience. Um, but I don't think, I think the data suggests, like international data suggests that I don't think tax cuts are the way to stimulate mm. growth, um, especially not if you want to maintain levels of public services. I just, my, my, my point there was, is more that I just don't think that this small, this analysis of the situation that small boats is why we're losing, this is the main thing, this is what we need to focus on. And you see this in a lot of different Tory MPs over the week. I mean, Simon Clark is one of the main ones who sort of come out and said, you know, this is why we need to make this small boats thing work. It's like, I just, I don't buy that analysis at mm. all that the reason that they're not doing well is, is, is because of small boats and that's the big issue. I think the biggest issue is cost of living and more specifically, trust in the Conservative Party, which has been absolutely destroyed destroyed in the last couple of years. Steadying the ship and stopping this ridiculous infighting is, is surely the top thing that they need to do and fixing the economy as well and, and talk now. And obviously it looks like they're going to do that. It looks like Jeremy Hunt's going to give some tax, you know, tax cuts away soon. So they're already sort of working on that. But just trying to fix this ridiculous infighting is surely the more important thing than, than causing more fighting about small boats. There isn't really a way of fixing it like the, the Tory right. Not going to war it, over small boats though. Is, yeah, but he... The Tory right are going to not, fight him on that yeah. unless he concedes their demands. And if he does that, that's going to cause further infighting from the, you know, the other side of the party. That's I don't the, think there's a way... He can't stop the infighting. I think this comes back to the thing we talked about so many times, which is stuck in this terrible feedback loop, the doom loop, mm. where like falling, <clears throat> falling approval ratings and falling sort of headline polling just undermines unity, which in turn makes the polling worse, which undermines yeah. unity. But I think, I think my, my point is, is that he's staked so much of his premiership on small boats that he's made it a much larger thing than mm. he needed to. Because he's done that, that's caused more infighting than he necessarily needed to. Yeah, I think always point is that now he's done that, though, he's no yeah. way back. Yeah, sure, yeah. okay. Um, anyway, okay, so I think, is that everything we want to talk about with the poll? Anything? There's one, I didn't really know how to fit this in, but it's quite a fun fun for some people uh, fun uh, bit of um, data from the poll is that none of the constituencies in the well it's all 650 constituencies in no constituency do the Tories poll above 40% according to this poll oh that is fascinating and actually, you know is. to have nothing above 40% is is absolutely terrible yeah. for a party you know when they've got you know I don't know how many seats now but plenty over 50% a few over 60% mm. um, you know that is a real disaster if that actually is borne out in the actual election. I think I think as well, and this is related to that, the amount of, I can't remember who said it, it might have been Lord Frost himself actually, that said something like, the best we can hope for is a 1997 sort of wipeout. Like that's the best case mm. scenario on the back of this poll. Yeah. Which is pretty devastating. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, I also think that this goes back to something, it's, it's fun to cast your mind back to like whatever it is, a year ago, nine months ago, when Sunat first came in. And basically the big question was, would Tory poll numbers go up to reach Sunak's personal approval ratings or would Sunak's personal approval ratings come yeah. down? <laughs> We've and got a resounding answer. Down and then a bit more, which <laughs> yeah. is just poor, poor guy. I think also um, it's just, it's worth remembering as well 2019 and what, you know, 
your, your thoughts of how things are going to ha- work over the next five years on the day that we realised Johnson had won this massive majority, you know, the, the, the Labour worst election the, defeat since 1935 or whatever. And yeah, yeah, how it's panned out. This is a fun question. Do you think Boris Johnson would do better than Rishi Sunak? He can, he can swipe in he's just in two days' time. You know, like Sunak resigns voluntarily. Johnson just I think comes if they back. never got rid of Johnson, they'd be doing a lot better now. I think in, in a sense, you know, if, if, if the ultimate goal was just the Tories to win the highest number of seats, getting rid of Johnson was the wrong move. Um, but I think if you were to bring him back, I think it just undermines the Tory unity thing even more, and I think he'd do worse. So if he'd have stayed on and never got rid of him, I think they'd be doing way better. But if you just bring him back, no. It's very hard. I don't think he'd, they'd be doing better if they brought if they brought him back. But I also don't think they'd be doing better if he stayed on. Because oh, I think wow, you're you're a Johnson pessimist. Yeah, because I think he he left kind of at the peak of his unpopularity. You know, when there were scandals and all sorts of terrible things going on. If he was in for another two years after that, there'd have just been more, more bad things. You know, like all this COVID inquiry stuff yeah. it would have been a lot more relevant because he'd still be prime minister. I just, uh, I just think he would have continued cre- cratering until the next election. I think he'll win in 2024. <laughs> Do it, Tories. Come on, let's have it. Yeah. Love another go. Switch one, a new leader will help. I'm sure yeah, that'll yeah. do it. Yeah. One Please. more. Please. Trust our instincts. <laughs> um, okay. So that's if he loses that. the Rwanda vote this week, you might be in the money. With him, oh, maybe I should put a ten on Boris Johnson to win in twenty twenty four. The odds would be yeah. phenomenal. Wow, he's got to he'd be retiring. Come yeah. back as an MP first. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, all right. Uh, I think that's everything. This takes us on to the final bit of the podcast, um, which is the global leader leaderboard. For new viewers, this is when. We basically take a look at what's happened in the past week or so, or since we lasted the podcast, and we pick one world leader to go up and one world leader to go down. Again, as always, this is not a reflection of our personal politics. Sometimes people look at the board and they see Vladimir Putin at the top and they think that we're all massive Russophiles, but it's just that from that individual perspective, how was their week? Um, So, Roy, do you want to start with who's going down? So I'm moving down Narendra Modi, the Indian Prime Minister. Um, this is because, uh, <laughs> Maldives. You've got oh, to have yeah. a reason. Yeah. You can't just, just as Maldives and brackets, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is because, um, there's been this slightly odd diplomatic spat between the Maldives and India, um, in the last couple of weeks. Initially seemed very futile and very kind of irrelevant. It was to do with Modi posing on a beach for some photos. You might know this better than me, Zach, but he was posing on a beach for some photographs some ministers in the Maldives thought was him trying to tell people in India, don't go on holiday to the Maldives, yeah. stay in India. They said some rude things about him and got dis- got suspended and caused a bit of a spat. But probably more importantly than that is that um, uh, the new president of the Maldives, who was elected last year, has uh, ordered this small um, contingent of Indian troops that has a presence in the Maldives out of the country, He's sending them back to India. Um, so that's yeah, pretty bad for Indian influence in the country. The Maldives has been kind of in the in the centre of this battle for influence between India and China. So um, the guy who was elected last year, he was he he's kind of anti-India, pro kind of warmer ties with China. So that's just um, you know this kicking out of Indian troops is the first step in in reversing the the current setup, I suppose. Yeah, I just say it's uh, it's not funny necessarily, but some of the quotes are quite yeah. entertaining. So. <laughs> Again, he was just walking on a beach, and it was in in, in first. And some Maldivian yeah, uh, politicians basically sort of assumed that, that was an implicit diss about how nice the Maldives are as a holiday destination. 
Um, and so some of the quotes from uh, Maldives ministers include calling Modi a clown, a terrorist, and a puppet of Israel, which is pretty strong for walking on a beach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think these are, you know, th- th- these sort of things are interesting just because they are so clearly like proxies for the wider yeah. Indo-China battle. Um, one thing I do think is a bit interesting, and that I think, especially true of India, is that I, I don't know whether or not it's conscious or not, but India does seem to have its own form of what you might describe as wolf warrior diplomacy. And I think that's a mistake, just because I think that the, the China had a, obviously it was big. The wolf warrior diplomacy refers to um, a, a diplomatic style that certain Chinese officials adopted yeah. in the late 2010s. Uh, it's named after a film, the Wolf Warrior series, I think. Um, and it's just basically about being very, very aggressive uh, on social media and, and basically taking anything as like a sort of national slight. Um, and they've really toned it down in like the past year or two. You can, you can, it's, I mean, it's really, really conspicuous. It's very easy to forget quite how hawkish the rhetoric was from certain Chinese officials, even on stuff like Twitter, especially during the pandemic when they were just like, any world leader who like floated the lab leak theory or anything like that would just get launched on and they'd just be, you know, they'd, they'd come out with whole, whole loads of stuff. Um, and that is quite conspicuously different to the tone they take today. I mean, the, the Chinese diplomatic messaging is far more Australian. That's just fundamentally because actually it wasn't very effective. It, it plays well with your domestic base. You know, there were basically uh, parts of the Chinese like electorate or public um, who, who were very happy with that. But it's a really bad strategy for like um, establishing soft power. Mm. Um, and I think India should probably be wary of that. I imagine similar domestic dynamics are at play in that that sort of like nationalist, yeah. quite jingoistic, bellicose rhetoric plays well or like reactions play well um, with the Indian public, but it might not be a good strategy in the long term. And maybe mm. that's unfair. I mean, I, I should probably double check the uh, comments from the government of India, but you do see those sort of opinions or that, that sort of style being mimicked mm. by uh, certain Indian officials. Um, yeah, I, that is, is a is a... It's a good story. I like, <laughs> I like that story. We've been considering doing a main video on it for a while. Mm. I don't know if we're going to. It might be a good daily briefing yeah. story for the next couple of days. Um, ben, mm. explain yourself. <laughs> so, <clears throat> when doing research, I, I don't think there's that many people that can go up this week. In fact, I don't think anyone can really legitimately have a claim to going up. So, as a result of that, I mean, I have people that could go down... But as, as we pointed out, you know, if I to, the whole reason the board works is because if you have one person going up, one person down each week, the board moves in sort of a fair and equal way. Can I offer you someone to go up? I have someone else, but can I offer you someone to go up? Uh, you can offer. And then you can have your down and we can still have an, an even board. Sure, yeah. So a tentative up that I don't think is actually necessarily all that honest, but we can go for it, is Mohammed bin Salman. In, in what way? In that the Houthis, mm. who are obviously one of Saudi Arabia's long-term like rival or enemies, as it were, although that's maybe not a fair description given they've been like a ceasefire since April 2022, um, are now the sort of, they are the enemy of the international community. Um, and that should, in some sense, be good for Saudi Arabia if they want to get rid of the Houthis. They now have a lot more sort of like uh, international support in that endeavour. Uh, the reason I say it's tentative is because I think that the Saudis actually, you know, it might be good. Some Saudi uh, leaders might want that. But actually, I think the Saudis' priority is regional stability, mm. which is why they signed that ceasefire in 2022. And you see that in the way they reacted to the Houthi strikes. They released a statement calling for restraint and avoiding escalation, uh, which is, you know, again, it's a, it's a very clear sign that their priority there is not actually taking out the Houthis, which, by the way, isn't feasible given the Houthis control 70% of Yemen's population um, and have survived 
years of Saudi-led barrages. Uh, but nonetheless, there's, there's a sense in which, just if you're looking through the narrow prism of the Saudi-Houthi rivalry, uh, the, the, the last couple of weeks have been good for the Saudis. You can have it if you want. I'll take it, I'll take it. Okay, fine, so he's going up and it. then... Okay, well, that leaves me as my, as my up. My up today is going to be Georgia Maloney. And it, we have struggled for ups, we'll be honest, this week. Um, but the reason Maloney's going up, I, th- I just think it's quite a fun one. And this is something I've been struck by in the last like six months or so, is that there is an enormous power vacuum at the centre of the EU. Um, we've talked about loads. Macron is uniquely unpopular. And he's becoming not a lame duck president, but he's, you know, he doesn't have the political power that he once did. Schultz is, is probably even less popular. Um, and the thing that made Germany the sort of the European superpower that it was in the 2010s and even until very, very recently are fading. It has, you know, its, its economy is fading. It is borrowing more money, which is, you know, one of the things that established as a superpower was the Eurozone crisis when it got to do its whole, like, look at me, I was so right in never borrowing money. Um, and Maloney, at least according to morning concert polling, is still quite popular, especially by uh, Italian standards. She's at polling at 41% approval rating, which are numbers that only, you know, Maloney, um, that Schultz and Macron can only dream of. Mm-hmm. And as we mentioned in the last podcast with me and Rory, I do think her politics is entering the European mainstream. Uh, and sometimes people say that Maloney's not as radical as she pretended to be during the election. I think that's partly true. But I think it's also that the European median, the European mm-hmm. centre, has moved towards, especially on stuff like immigration. Um, and also that thing we talked about last podcast about this, the civilizational understanding of the European Union, which Maloney very clearly subscribes to. So I basically think there's a power vacuum in the EU and Maloney is sort of filling it. She is becoming one of the EU's leading figures. And I think that is actually quite unprecedented. I think that Italian politicians have not really ever, well, have rare, especially ones that are not technocrats, have rarely been considered sort of like leading mm-hmm figures in the eu um so i started with the person going down for me but you guys have done your two ups yeah so we're slightly unbalanced yeah at the moment. we balls we balls that up yeah. Yeah. yeah sorry that's ben's fault for trying to disrupt the <laughs> format um but <laughs> that's okay. my bad yeah to be fair. Uh, okay yeah. well fine you go you're I'll going put up my person now, up yeah and we'll go our downs yes, yes. second okay. so moving up for me um is xi jinping uh, okay half Half because of the, the Maldives thing. <laughs> it's only about to get more complicated. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but, so India losing influence in the Maldives, that's part of it. But the main yeah. reason I wanted to do it was because um, Nauru, this tiny Pacific Island nation, has uh, abandoned Taiwan and shifted its diplomatic recognition to the People's Republic of China. Um, so that, I think that leaves Taiwan with just 11 countries left now, officially recognizing it. Um, and China's kind of just been picking off these small countries um, gradually leaving Taiwan with fewer and fewer um, diplomatic allies. So, yeah, good news for, for Xi Jinping there. And, uh, yeah. Well, I'm moving Xi Jinping down. Same. Oh, dear. Uh, oh, this is chaos. Yeah. Um, and this is because of the um, Taiwan election results and the fact that it's a sort of separatist or one that would, that would you know, except as party has won the election, uh, which she doesn't like terribly. I probably terribly would call well. the DPP a separatist party. I mean, they're more sympathetic to independence. Sure. Okay. Than... Maybe that was a bit strong. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think they would not more independence than sure. the, the sort of KMT. Uh, so yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I was also going. This is interesting because this is more just a discussion about she, um, and he's got two ups now, so he is going to go up. You've been outvoted. Yeah. Yeah. We've got to keep the board even. Um, but one, I think one of the things that the reasons that the Taiwanese election was tough for China 
Uh, it's obviously the result in itself, but I think that the DPP's new policy on independence, mm. which is that we are already de facto independent, therefore we don't have to announce independence. It's, it's a really clever little shift. Um, and it just means that there's, there's, there's not going to be a point, there's not going to be a trigger for escalation. Yeah. Um, but the, they've nonetheless moved further towards being a sort of independent state, if that's the right way of putting it. Um, and I do think that makes life quite difficult for China when it comes to Taiwan, because I think that the, the status quo before was, was that you would never make a formal declaration of independence, and therefore China would never have a sort of, uh, there would never be a provocation mm. that required a military response from China. But now that they've sort of just crossed into, like, it's a tacit declaration yeah. of independence um, that has sort of gone without retaliation. And I think that makes it very hard for China to, to find a reason to escalate. Although mm. I, I'm not saying that we should rule it out. Um, but I do think that's, that is difficult. And I do think that is, has been a net bad week, uh, for poor Xi Jinping. So, <laughs> so, uh, so he's staying where he is then? He's going down. I, sorry, yeah, because yeah, I moved I was, him up one. You back, moved yeah. him down two, so he's going oh, down, down one, he's going I guess. Down one. Yeah. Um, but for this, if it's for the same reason, does he not, is it not just one move down if we're both saying he's going down for similar sort of... I think if you've been outvoted, he goes down. Okay. Yeah. Because otherwise, sure, that's how sure. you make sure that the board stays yeah. even. Or that being said, that just means we have tons of people... On the well, that plan yeah. there. What chaos? Um, I'll do that now. What chaotic ending? Yeah. Need to see what the state of the board is after this. Well, it's good to know that Starmer and Putin remain remain on unbeatable. That is a very busy line, though, isn't it? Okay. Hmm. Trudeau's got a whole little section to himself. <laughs> anyway, all right. <laughs> so. <laughs> So, thank you very much for watching the TLTR UK podcast. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We're sorry for the chaos of moving between channels. Um, it will be on this one from now on. We can commit to that uh, with some degree of certainty. Uh, yeah, with certainty, with utter certainty. Um, thank you very much for watching. We hope you enjoyed and we will see you again uh, well, we, on this channel. We'll see you again on Thursday oh. because we are moving the global podcast for very much the same reasons back from TLDR Global onto this channel, TLDR Podcast. So if you enjoyed this, see you on Thursday. If not, well, have a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Very good.